is up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here for episode number 162 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I am here tonight with Shawan Humes, who was missing last week, but he's back. Don't worry, everyone. He is not trapped in the closet, and we're not talking about the R. Kelly version. Shawan, how you doing there, sir? Let everybody know how what's going. I'm not doing bad at all. Nice to be back on the show. Still surviving. As I told Rafi earlier, I'm in Texas, so either it's going to go really smooth for the next couple weeks, or all hell's going to break loose. <laughs> one or the other. There's only going to be one of the no in between, one of the two extremes. That's all I got to look forward to. Do you have your zombie apocalypse plan all in place? I mean, I've been planning for years, especially with staying in shape. People are like, why do you always run it and uh, not not eating a lot? I'm like, because if I have to join, join a group of humans, they're going to figure, well, this guy can walk into town for us because he's in good shape. He doesn't eat very much, and he's really helpful. So I'm like one of the prime people to stay with the group when things get tough. All the other guys who are kind of lazy and don't want to help and eat a lot, First people gone. First, first, first people that leave behind for the zombies. Listen, if I already have my group of friends kind of sorted out, as in when the zombie apocalypse comes, who am I going to band together with, and who are we going to kind of like bring into the group just to use them as bait? I, I, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but those friends that ain't working out, that ain't in the gym, that can't do one pull up and all that stuff, nah, man, you might have to, you might have to be that sacrificial lamb at some point in time. I mean, you won't, they wouldn't have a choice. When they start chasing you, they ain't going to be able to stop. They ain't going to be able to get away. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Killing the, you're doing it, don't, I didn't do it to you. You did it to yourself. That's all I can say. So in that vein of talking about people doing things to themselves, we have a fight weekend after about a month. I think it's been, I think it's been, it's been more than a month, actually, since the last UFC card when they were down in Brazil and we saw Kevin Lee get submitted. We saw... Um, Gilbert Burns knockout Damian Maya. We have another slate of fights with UFC 249 scheduled for this Saturday, May 9th, going down in Jacksonville, Florida. And we have a hell of a card um, to talk about. We will be discussing a good number of those fights and also talking about some new fight announcements from this weekend. We got a listener questions at the end of the show. So let's go ahead and jump right into it, Schwan. Let's talk about UFC. 249. And before we jump into the fight breakdowns themselves, which I kind of want to I want to go through without any like interruptions for lack of a better term, let's talk about the fact that the UFC is finally revealed. I don't want to say they revealed because the information was leaked via email, but they will be doing COVID-19 testing pre-event. They're going to be testing for the antibodies and also doing the um the swab test that everyone is uh, I don't want to say is public because it's not that public, but they will be doing the COVID-19 testing pre-event. There is no word on what they will be doing after event or if any of that will fall on the fighters themselves or anything like that. Nothing along those lines have been covered, but we have gotten information that they will be doing uh, COVID-19 testing at this event. So let's start there, Schwan. What are your thoughts about that? Is that enough to get some of the negative media attention off of them? Is that enough for people to say, okay, we see that you're trying to, to take some steps, or is it still not enough for the current situation that we're in? Well, the biggest thing about it for me is, like, it's good, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a lot of good pub from this point, but some people would ask, why didn't, I mean, y'all are a multi-billion dollar company, why didn't y'all just do this ahead of time? 
like, you know, do this for everybody ahead of time so you could kind of schedule flights responsibly so you could actually say, we've tested this guy, this guy is clear, that's why this guy is getting scheduled. So that when people are saying we have concerns about this fight, the paperwork says all the people are healthy and capable of fighting. So that's a pretty succinct thought there. And what I wanted to talk about is you mentioned why didn't they just do this in advance? I think that that's a, that question is, is layered in a multiple different ways because I mean they're not they're not you know, paying them so they got the money. <laughs> I mean, true, that is one thing. Obviously, they um, access to testing has been a touch point not only within the sports industry but within the country as a whole. So I'm sure that played a part in it. And I think another piece of it was I don't I believe we were at a point where testing wasn't enough because the country just wasn't. The, cousin, the country wasn't in a, in a position to put on any events. We see states, like you just said, Texas is opening back up. Florida is, is jumping back out there, um, even though they're covering up their, uh, their COVID-19 data, but that's another conversation for another day. So I think that they wanted to wait in, until someone opened the door just enough for them to burst through like the Kool-Aid man. I think that them doing testing is, it, I mean, it's, I think it'll be enough to get some people off of their back. The question I keep asking, though, is if someone does pop up with the COVID-19 test, will that information be revealed? It doesn't have to be the, the, the individual's name, but will that information be put out? I think that the hard and fast answer to that is no. The same way we saw with the WWE when Sean Rossat broke that story uh, after WrestleMania that someone on air, they didn't say who, they didn't say whether it was a wrestler, they didn't say whether it was a um, someone behind the scene or not someone like behind the commentator booth, they didn't say whether it was an announcer, someone, a referee, but someone came down with COVID-19 to the point where they were tested and diagnosed with it, and they had opportunity to recover, so you don't know how long they were still active, but the only reason why that information came out is because Sean Rossat got word of it, and he was going to publicize that story and he and he was and he gave the WWE a couple of days heads up. They revealed it. He released the story a day later. If that was to happen within the UFC, I do not think that news would get out in any way, shape, or form. Uh, because we know that they don't not only do they not want that black eye, but they don't want people saying that they told you so. Because this is a this is an industry where if one fighter have it had it. There's no telling how much it would be spread within that card, within that, um, within that gym, within that area where that the gym is being held. There's just too many questions around that, and I don't think that we'll find out if one of these tests do come back negative. Well, my my other concern is that other team. I mean, I don't know about NFL because they're not in, in season, but in fighting sports, you're never out of season. The NBA was in season. They've had whole teams tested. They found out people had it. They've had people on quarantine. They've had people found out people were negative. And I know the Dana White thing is the UFC is going to compete with these sports. We're one of the big sports. But in a one area where you could prove that you're one of the big sports because fighting's all season long, why haven't you already taken steps initially? Like I said, it's it's good that they're doing it now, but had they done it before, he'd have so much more legitimacy. Well, I'm making this fight. Justin Gaethje, such and such, are everybody on this card is COVID-free. Now, you can't control the environment. They're interacting with other people, and you can't maybe test everybody in the building, I guess, per se. But you could at least say the fighters on this card are 100% COVID-19 free. 
and that would that would get some of the heat off of you. I mean, then again, some people will probably spin it and say, well, now you're exposing them to other people. But the fact of the matter is they could have already done that. For some reason, they're choosing not to. Maybe it's expensive at all. Maybe they feel – maybe at some point Dana White, as he usually thinks, he can just – bully his way through everything and he won't ever have to deal with consequence consequences or answer questions but it just seems very lazy on their part to not have already taken some steps to uh to assure the safety or at least the safety of the active participants or their active employees instead of just sitting there and being like well we're gonna do this right at this point well you could have done this before you could have done this before just in a, a gesture of goodwill that would have set you apart from some of the other places the other places are paying people their salaries putting up stipends you could well, we're testing all our employees. I mean, that's a big separator. That's an expensive cost. That's something the fighters will remember moving forward. So, yeah, I think that that will be a, a story that will not get as much coverage as it as it did earlier. But um, I think it's a conversation point that will be intriguing, especially if, especially as we find out more after the um, event goes down. But with that in mind, let's, let's turn our mind and turn our eyes to this fight card where we have a number of stacked, stacked fights. I'm not going to talk about, we're not going to talk about every single one. I picked out eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight that I would like to focus on. And let's start with this main event where we have Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje, a fight that I think people should be excited on about because no matter what this fight was being booked for, if it was being booked on a Fox card, a pay-per-view main event, if it was being booked anywhere, it would be an exciting matchup. And this is exactly what I think this is a good introduction back to business for MMA and the UFC uh, specifically, especially if they can get a lot of people watching this fight because it has the potential to be something that is highlight reel-esque for both men and that, I think, is what the UFC wants to really kind of elevate at this time. On one side, we have Tony Ferguson, who is riding a, let's see how long his win streak is. He's riding a monumental win streak against a former World Series of Fighting champion, but he has not lost. Tony Ferguson has not lost since 2012, so eight years where he lost to Michael Johnson. Um, and Justin Gaethje is riding a three-fight win streak with wins over James Vick, Edson Barbosa, and Donald Cerrone. So let's talk about this fight here, Swan. Um, Ferguson is coming in as the favorite, Justin Gaethje as the underdog, which is pretty much understandable. What are your thoughts about this fight from a matchup standpoint, and how do you see things going down? I just think it's in, in all actuality, it's really a bad matchup for uh, Tony Ferguson. As good as he is, a lot of his fighting style... And I said this before, I said this when Stephen Wright was on the show, said this on multiple shows. Tony Ferguson doesn't come, like you attack a man's strengths, weaknesses to beat him, you attack his strengths to break him. Tony Ferguson insists on attacking his opponent's strengths at every, every corner. He doesn't ever try to take the easy way out. He tries to meet them head on, show you that I can either beat you there or, or, or you don't have a huge advantage there. And then he goes into showcasing the full array of his skills or exploiting holes in your game. But before he exploits holes in your game, he's got to show that if I fight your game, either I can beat you at it or that we're dead even. And in doing so, he always puts himself at risk of being finished. Against Anthony Pettis, he got dropped. Against Donald Cerrone, for the first round and a quarter, it was real competitive. Against Kevin Lee, he was getting touched up. Just in multiple fights, you see him getting knocked around, banged around, kicked around, punched around, all because he's choosing to engage in a fight 
that he has the skills to totally avoid. When he fought Lando Venata, he didn't use his jab. He didn't use his lance. He just came in there swinging, pressuring him. And he just got eaten up. He almost got knocked out. Then as soon as he put his jab on him and started mixing in the skills, it was an easy fight. Why you wouldn't do that from the go is beyond me. But in, a, in trying these waters with Justin Gaethje, it's just a very difficult thing to do. Gaethje's a world-class finisher. Gaethje's got world-class power. He's one of the better athletes in the division, and he's a guy who looks for and is just as willing to accept punishment as Tony Ferguson is. Tony Ferguson is. So for one time in his life, Tony Ferguson is going to just be able to put somebody through the blender, and that guy's going to slowly back away. That guy's going to start looking for rest spots. Gage is going to punch back. Gage is going to swing back. Gage is going to push back. And I don't know that Tony Ferguson is prepared for a guy who's just as willing as him to receive and distribute punishment. Most guys will dish it out, but they can't really take it. Gage is a guy who's fully capable of taking it. And stylistically, Gage attacks the legs. Gage likes to punish the bodies. Most guys haven't gone to the body on Tony. Most guys don't kick the leg on Tony. They're not dedicated leg kickers. Gage is one. And Tony's very hittable. And even with Tony at his best, he's a volume guy, a beat you up guy, a physical guy. And that plays right into Gage's wheelhouse. So from a technical perspective, there's outside of a pure grappling advantage that Ferguson has, he doesn't really have a lot of ways to get it and keep it on the ground and on the feet, even if he is even even though he might have a little bit broader tool set or toolkit, the fact of the matter is he might have fifteen tools. Justin Gaethje's one basically eliminates all of those. So a lot of things have to go right for him to be Justin Gaethje. And based off what I've seen from them in their last four or five fights, it's hard to pick Tony Ferguson in this, given his fighting style and and the mistakes he makes. In, in how he prepares and the mistakes he makes is in, in regards to how we fight. So what I'm seeing mostly in reference to this is that people are looking at this fight in one of two ways. If it ends quickly, they see it going for uh, Justin. If it gets into the championship rounds, they see it going for Ferguson. Is that a school of thought you can subscribe to and why? Well, I mean, in theory, you want to say that it is because in the fights Gaethje's looked the most, the best in, and the fights he's lost, he lost to Alvarez. That went a very long time. I think he lost it late in the third round. When he fought uh, Dustin Poirier, I want to say he lost late in the fourth round. So against elite guys or UFC-level type guys, the further the fight has gone, the more punishment he's taken. It's been the only fights he's lost. Against Cowboy, short fight one. Vic, short fight one. Barboza, short fight one. Uh, Johnson, that was like, what, second round knockout, fight one. When the fight goes past a certain point, his style can be a, a matter of diminishing returns. Because even even though, even though he's a better defensive fighter than most people take credit for, the fact is when you put that much pressure and you depend on physicality and you're that much of a finisher, you're going to take an inordinate amount of punishment. So the question is, can he maintain that pace? Can he maintain that explosiveness? Can he maintain that maintain that aggression at the intensity three in round three round four round five and so far he hasn't been able to not enough to win so logically speaking you could you could take that approach you could say well if the fight goes on later it's tony's best chance but the fact of the matter is i i don't know i don't know that tony i don't know that if tony if he can match tony's pace i don't know that tony doesn't slow down late because tony's been fight, fighting guys whose thing is to avoid his rushes, to kind of 
fight him in spots. He hasn't faced a guy who's willing to really bite down in exchange and has the physical tools to kind of take what he has to offer. Tony Ferguson isn't a big hitter. He, he's not a big hitter. He's not freakishly strong. He's not a super dynamic athlete. It's just most guys aren't willing to bite down and stay in front of him. Mentally, they break. Physically, they tire. And they can't do enough damage in and of themselves to hurt him enough to turn the tide. Justin Gaethje is perfectly capable of knocking him out with any shot. Donald Cerrone's not a KO striker. That's a that's a myth. Uh, who else is Tony Ferguson be? Lando Venata isn't a knockout striker. Anthony Pettis is, to a degree. But I think if Justin Gaethje would have got Tony Ferguson in the spot that Anthony Pettis did, Justin Gaethje finishes him. So it, it, it I think that's I think that's the correct logic based based on their records. One guy has won multiple decisions. One guy has got, been able to fight at pace for five rounds. But the only difference is in this is the caliber of athlete he's fighting. And the type of athlete he's fighting, he hasn't faced a guy in a Justin Gaethje sort of vein as far as the as far as the volume, as far as the athleticism, as far as the physicality and the aggression. He hasn't faced a guy who's looking for exchanges. He's fought guys who are willing to accept them, but he hasn't fought somebody who's actually looking for contact. And that's a big difference in the fight. What's interesting that you say that is looking at his record, you see guys who, and talking about Tony, who kind of fit some of those pieces. But not all of them. Like you say, you know, KO fighter who's looking for exchanges, Edson Barbosa. But Edson always, Edson doesn't deal with the same type of pressure that Tony brings in a very, in a, in that same type of fashion. Josh Thompson, Josh Thompson was a volume striker. Barbosa just can't take it. Yeah, you're right. That's what I'm saying. He can't take, he can't deal with that same type of, of pressure. Josh Thompson, he's a volume striker, but... He, oh, at that point in his career, this is 2015. That's not the same Josh Thompson that was tearing things up in Strike Force. I mean, Abel Trujillo same was thing, a big same thing with Pettis. Same thing, same thing with Pettis and, and Cerrone. They weren't, they weren't who they were. They weren't who they were two or three years ago. The only person you could think of who may have been like a big time knockout artist, Yves Edwards. But at two in 2011, Yves wasn't that guy that was highlight reeling anybody anymore. So yeah, I can agree with you that he's not at that, he hasn't fought anyone that's at that point where they're like still a threat. It's like Floyd Mayweather yeah. fighting Miguel Cotto when he fought him. Miguel Cotto was dangerous, yeah. but he wasn't as much of a threat as he was years before. It's like, a, and I'm sure you've heard some of this on, on Twitter or, or you've seen articles. Tony's beaten a lot of really good guys, but he's beaten guys who were great a year or two or three years before he fought them. He hasn't really fought anybody anywhere near as far as when they were on an upswing when Justin fought Dustin fought Eddie Alvarez Eddie Alvarez was considered one of the elite at that time when he fought Dustin Poirier even though he lost those fights those guys were considered elite I don't know who you would consider elite in Tony's last five to seven fights I mean if you if you look at it evenly I would say that most of Tony's opposition isn't much better than what Justin Gaethje fought in the World Series of Fighting and in the UFC, in fact, in the UFC, I'd probably say Justin Gaethje's fought the better competition. I'll agree with that. Well, you said yeah, yeah. I, mean, I would agree that, that you, Justin you, has you fought just put, the better competition. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, I think they both fought Edson Barboza, you know, but Justin beat him faster. They both fought Donald Cerrone, but Justin beat him faster. But I mean, uh, Tony, Justin fought. Uh, he fought Dustin Poirier, Eddie Alvarez, two former champions. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ferguson hasn't fought anybody in that caliber. The best person he's fought as far as at their prime and athleticism probably would have been Kevin Lee right now. Maybe Anthony Pettis? What's interesting Anthony is their, their, only, their only mutual fight is Michael Johnson, who knocked out 
um, Ferguson and just in case you finished him, but he was also hurt by him too, multiple times. Yeah. Once again, Michael Johnson probably would have been at, at the time he fought him would have been the best athlete that Ferguson faced. And for, in, in my opinion, Ferguson hasn't shown any more ability to deal with speed and explosiveness than he did before. He just hasn't fought a lot of very fast and explosive guys since that point. I mean, if you look through his record, all the explosive guys can get to him. All the dynamic guys can get to him. The question is, he breaks him down with that volume, that physicality. I don't know if he's going to break Justin Gage down. I don't know if he's going to be able to get to the spots necessary. Like, he can attack the body, but while he's attacking the body, Justin's attacking the body. I don't know if his boxing is well good enough. I don't know if he's defensively sound enough. Now, he has a skill set, but when I think about it, is he going to be able to take Justin down repeatedly and, and submit him? I don't know. I've never really seen that from Tony. I've seen Tony get taken down more than I've seen him take guys down. If he's going to be in the clinch, well, Gaethje wants to fight in the clinch. He's going to kick him. Gaethje wants to kick. He wants to get in wild exchanges. Well, Gaethje wants to get in wild exchanges. So it's like it, I'm trying to find a clear play, place that he dominates him or where he can get him to the positions he dominates, and it's very hard for me to come up with one. Good thoughts there, sir. Um, coming out of Saturday, who is the interim light weight champion and what do they do next um i would probably say uh, you know what I, it sounds like i'm disrespecting tony ferguson i have a lot of respect for him i just can't ignore the facts I, i'd say it's going to be justin gaethje and then justin will fight khabib um when when is khabib back from i know he's going to be off for a while right he's not gonna he can't fight for like three months or something yeah he has ramadan so it's usually like september so, when he comes back so So, I mean, if Justin has a belt, because uh, I'm, I'm not kidding. If, if he wins that belt, I don't see how he doesn't call it Conor McGregor, and I don't see how the UFC doesn't make that fight. So, if, if he wins, I don't see how it's not Conor McGregor next, unless Conor just wants to go a, total, a totally different route. But if Conor beats Justin, and Khabib said he would never fight Conor again until whatever, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Fact of the matter, Conor, if Conor beats Justin, then he'll say, I've won two fights in a row. I beat two top-ranked guys, and I beat the interim champ who was on a four or five win, win streak, who beat the other guy who was on like an 11-fight win streak. I demand that I need, I need the fight. People have to respect it, and the UFC has their rematch, money fight, all at once. So I'm, I'm going to say Gaethje, and I'm saying he's going McGregor next. I, I can't imagine him waiting three months. Not when, that, not when that McGregor fight's waiting right out there, and that $2 million payday is waiting right there in front of him. See, the thing is, I don't think – I think McGregor's going Masvidal next. And um, that's based off of some things that Dana White has said recently. I think that McGregor is going mess with all next, but that does not mean that a fight with Justin could not happen before September. Because remember, you know, Connor's been talking about fighting three to four times this year. So if he wanted to squeeze something in between now and then, uh, if he wanted to fight Masvidal first, and then maybe if he gets the win there, fight Justin, something along those lines, I think that that could work. But I think that Masvidal fight is next for McGregor. So as far as Justin goes, I would I could see him winning that fight and then maybe sitting out and waiting on uh, Khabib, waiting on a bigger payday there. And um, or see Dustin Poirier was supposed to fight um, Dan Hooker, so maybe you know there is a opportunity for that fight to get rebooked and him to face the winner there. So there's still some wiggle room. Uh, maybe Max Holloway bumps back up. You know, so there's still some wiggle room in some of these guys that could be moved around to can help who, who could help fill the void. Yeah, no, I mean, you make very compelling arguments, but I don't see, especially with the way just 
Justin has been talking about Connor and Justin's manager hates Connor because he also manages Khabib. I don't see how some way, somehow they don't make that fight because if he beats Connor and then he fights Khabib, that makes the Khabib fight even bigger. Connor beats him and fights Khabib, that's a huge fight. The UFC could essentially get two back to back blockbuster events with these guys. I mean, Justin Gaethje, I mean, you could, let's just throw Tony in there. They could have three huge marquee fights back to back Gaethje versus Ferguson. Gaethje or Ferguson, I'll say Gaethje. Gaethje versus McGregor. McGregor versus Khabib or Gaethje versus Khabib. That's three prime time, should be big selling cards with no competition, with guys who are have huge fan bases and are known for making exciting fights. I don't, I don't know. They pass on that kind of money. Those are some good thoughts there too, as well, man. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Let's go to the co-main event where we have Henry Cejudo defending his bantamweight title against former champion Dominic uh, Cruz, who's coming off of a four-year layoff. And this is a fight that a lot of people are looking at, kind of rolling their eyes at first, but it's still a fight that has value. It's still a fight that has intrigue. Um, and it's an opportunity for Cejudo to knock off another quote-unquote legend, I guess, from 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 or it's his opportunity to knock off a legend, one of the big names that he's been looking at fighting. Uh, his cringe bullshit aside that I don't want to talk about here, what do you think about this fight? What would a win do for his legacy in defeating a former champion who has barely been beaten throughout his career if he was able to defeat him and uh, secure that title around his waist? Before I get into that, I, I need to know who Uriah Faber's manager is. Because if Uriah just would have sat his ass down instead of fighting Peter Yan, he'd have this fight right now. Aldo would have fallen out. Favor would have been the biggest name. Favor versus Cejudo, they would have taken the fight. He would have had. He would have walked back into a title shot off of one fight. Whoever convinced him to fight Peter Yan should be fired on the spot because they would have picked Favor over over Cruz right now. I guarantee they would have taken Favor over Cruz. All he had to do was just sit there and let let the cards fall into place. And by taking that fight, he essentially kicked himself out of having a title shot at Cejudo. I don't care what anybody tells me. They would have taken favor over taking Cruz for that position. Um, Back to the actual matchup. I'm actually very interested in this. I I don't really know what to expect from this fight because you've seen so little of Dominic Cruz. And the last time we saw him, he was getting beat up by Cody Cody Garbron. So it's like you really wonder what version of Dominic Cruz are you going to see? Are you going to see – I mean, is he still – capable of doing the move and the slipping and the dipping and the ducking and the jumping at uh, four or five hard rounds. I mean, he's not what he used to be physically he's declining. He's older. And even though he's been training, he hasn't been in with live bullets in years. You know, I mean, he's still got one of the sharpest minds in mixed martial arts, but he's facing a guy who is more durable, who's one of the most durable guys in two weight divisions, probably no worse than the third or fourth, third or fourth best athlete in each division. Who's also super physically strong, hits really hard, can set, set and maintain a high pace, and is one of the best wrestlers in the world. So when you look at it from an athletic point of view, it's very hard to figure how Cruz is going to win this fight because it's going to require things of him that we haven't really seen except maybe on an occasion to. Cruz has never been known as a big hitter. He's never been known as a really dynamic athlete. He's never been known as a guy who's really particularly durable, to, in, in, my, in my opinion. I don't, I, I don't know that Cruz is really standout durable. He doesn't get hit enough to really test his durability. And having all these constant injuries and lack of uh, activity 
doesn't help you build up your derailed mentally you might have, but physically, I don't know that he does. My biggest interest in this fight is how does Cejudo attack this? Does Cejudo come out with his karate stance and try to fight a long game where it's feints and it's parries, and you try to find the one that one knockout shot or the one-two shots is going to put him away, and, and they fight at range, and it's kind of more of a tactical, strategical battle? Or does, does Henry Cejudo say, I'm just going to get in his face and physically grind on him and overwhelm him and break him down? In which case, you might see Dominic kind of play the angles and punish Cejudo for his aggression or his over-pursuit. That's where I think the real meat and bones of the fight, excuse me, meat and potatoes of the fight is. Um, my second question is, I, I really feel, my second point is, I really feel that at this stage, Dominic can still be slick, but I really think that you're going to start seeing him really sitting down on his punches a little bit more and really firing with some power on these shots. I, I think you might see something closer to the Mizugaki fight where he's going to come out gunning because he's physically incapable of maintaining the pace necessary for him to fight the way he needs to fight. And if you saw the TJ Dillashaw fight, you notice he, he was a little bit more aggressive with his counters. He, he was sitting down a little more. He was firing a little bit more power when he fought uh, Uri Faber. He was firing a little bit harder. And I can't imagine that we don't see more of that. As a fighter gets older, his legs start to go, which means those counters become hair trigger and the, and the, the heat on those counters get turned up because you no longer can get just dance, prance, and angle away for five hard rounds, 12 hard rounds, whatever the format you fight in. You have to be able to fight in spots. And I've noticed in the last couple of fights, Cruz has been fighting a lot more than usual. It just took me way too long to get off the mute. That was ridiculous. So, how, what does this do to the middle or the bantamweight division if Cruz gets a victory here? Um, I'm really interested in this fight. I'm interested in seeing how Cruz's, foot, Cruz's footwork what that does to Sahudo. I want to see what his wrestling can do in that situation because obviously, you know, he's not a better straight up wrestler than Henry Sahudo in any way, shape, or form. Um, but he has good MMA wrestling. I think he's a better striker when it comes to like point strikes. He's going to have the range. I mean, he's going to have so much more range over uh, Henry in this fight here. But so I don't think it's that far fetched for him to come out with a decision victory on uh, Saturday. So what do you think about this fight here? Do you think that if Cruz wins, it completely fucks up that whole 135-pound division? I mean, he's unranked, hasn't fought in four years. What does that do to that entire division? Well, if, it, if he wins, it throws the division in a, upside down because Cruz is going to do the same thing that Suda uh, that does. Cruz doesn't want to fight Jan. That's not a big fight. That doesn't help him out. Fighting Aljamain Sterling doesn't do anything for Cruz. Fighting whoever else, I mean, fighting Jose Aldo is a fight that sells, is a fight that has some sex appeal, is a fight that, that gets the hardcore fans excited and might expand his brand. But fighting these other guys doesn't do anything for him. It doesn't do anything at all. He doesn't want to fight these guys. He could have fought them before. He's only taking the fight because it's a title fight, and he wasn't going to take anything else. There's no point in it. It, it does great things for these other guys. It does nothing for Cruz. So Cruz wins this fight. I fully expect him to either... I, I just expect him to try to fight try to fight Jose Aldo, to be quite honest, or wait for TJ Dillashaw to come back and fight Dillashaw when Dillashaw comes back. Have Dillashaw um, have Dillashaw, Dillashaw, have him fight Dillashaw for the title again. That's that's the only thing I can think of. There's the only two fights that, that have any sort of storyline and selling point. Fighting these other guys is great for them, great for their careers. It does nothing for Cruz. And let me tell you, if Cruz somehow manages to beat Henry Cejudo, Cruz will officially be a top three of all time. MMA fighter. I don't care what people tell me about. He took time off. 
So you told me he took years off, rolled off the couch, knocked out Mizugaki, who was a top seven ranked bantamweight, took years off, came back, beat TJ Dillashaw, who was, as far as the UFC is considered, at worst, the second best bantamweight of all time in the UFC's history. And then took years off, and he comes back and then beats the the second best the second best flyweight of history and, and a dominant bantamweight champion. Like just those wins alone would kill ninety percent of fighters' careers. If he beats Cejudo, Dillashaw, he beats Cejudo, Dillashaw, the fight the wins over Faber and, and Benavides, those four names essentially are better than ninety percent of the fighters' whole careers. He beats Cejudo, and he does so dominantly. I don't care if it's by decision. I don't care if it's a bad decision. I don't care if it's by knockout. If he beats Cejudo, he is officially a top three of all time fighter. You can't tell me Demetrius Johnson, because I know Demetrius didn't really lose to Cejudo, so they tell me. The fact is, the record book says he lost. Dominic already beat him. He beat all the biggest names in his division, and then he goes to another organization and beats all them. If he does this, it's going to be one of the biggest upsets in history and he will be one of the best fighters of all time maybe just behind george st pierre i I don't know who else you could even compare him to who else has done such a feat all time i mean i'm not gonna (laughs) he'd be a double champ i mean he come out of the vacation to beat a double champ right off the bat first fight in he beat a double champ that i mean i i I have questions around him and to begin with. I mean, has he defended a title yet? He defended one title one time against a guy who was depleted himself to get down to 125. That's not his I fault. Mean, he took the fight. That ain't his fault. It's he not his control. fault. It's not his TJ fault. Told me, TJ told me he was fine. TJ told me he was fine. I, I know it, people who tweeted at him, and he said, I'm fine. I ain't making no excuses. That, so he said it. That's what that man said. Hiroshi legacy is in question already with me because the Demetrius Johnson fight should have been ran back. And, okay, you can put Dominic Cruz over him and DJ, especially because he has that dominant win over um, Johnson. So, okay, but I don't think you can put Dominic Cruz, if he wins this, I don't think you can put him above the likes of a GSP, of a um, John Jones, of a, I would put Amanda Nunez before him, I would. Put uh, I can't do that. He's fought better Man. competition than this. He's fought better competition than John Jones. John who, Jones has fought three really Cruz? good guys. You're crazy. Yes. You, 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 you got to remember. Faber, Faber, Benitez, and um, Tina Dillashaw are better than 90% of John Jones. The you're position. Out of your mind. Faber is an all time great. Faber is an all time great, a four time champion. <laughs> okay, Faber, 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 without a doubt. Faber, without a doubt, is an all time great. Joseph Benavidez is not an all time great. He's because he hasn't won a title. He, his resume says he's an all time great. He's beaten everybody except the champion. I mean, I just go by his. He's not an all time great. I'm sorry. There, I mean, there, are have... people, there are a lot of people who disagree. Okay, we'll take him out. He's beaten Uriah Faber, who was a man, almost who was number two at bantamweight and for most of his career, number one at featherweight. He beat Demetrius Johnson, who was at one point number two at bantamweight and number one at flyweight. He beat them both. He beat Cejudo, who was also number one at flyweight and number one at bantamweight. So he's beat. <laughs> I don't know how to spin it. I, I, I mean, don't know. If you look, if, if you, okay, so let's look at uh, Cruz's probably best wins. He has Faber. Mm-hmm. You can include, he beat Faber twice. You can include TJ in that, if you would like, um, and Demetrius Johnson. You said Justin That's Benavides. That's pretty big. He beat, that, that, he beat those... Joseph Benavides four times. Those are his biggest wins. 
probably. You get the three three Hall of Famers right there. Three first ballot Hall of Famers. Two, one guy who's a top two. who's a top five fighter. Of time. He beat two first first ballot Hall, Hall of Famers in Faber and um, DJ. So I would think people would If you want to pair that to let's just say John Jones for now, since I have his record up, I think that John Jones wins over Daniel Cormier are more valuable. His wins over Vitor are, are more valuable. His wins over ah, or okay. his win over Leona Machida is more valuable. His win over Quentin, uh, Quentin Jackson is more valuable. His win over Shogun is more valuable. Now his current run, I mean, because he doesn't, I'm, he doesn't have the, uh, the 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 division itself doesn't have, have doesn't have the depth to really kind of add that anymore. But those first five wins during his first title run are more valuable than Dominic Cruz's the, five wins. The, the only thing I would say is he beat Faber when Faber was close to his peak. If he beat Cejudo, he's beating the best Cejudo there's ever been. He beat Dillashaw at his peak. He beat Joseph Benavidez when Joseph Benavidez was close to his peak. A lot of Jones Faber wins on those guys. anymore. Faber's peak was when down. He, when he, the, when the, he the, the first one, the first one was when he, when, well, when was the first one? When was the first time Dominic Cruz beat, uh, so let me see something real quick. Dominic in the UFC, like six years ago, six seven years ago, it was a while. Because Faber won the first one. Yeah, he won in, in WC, and they rematched in the UFC for the title. Because what, what I'm saying is, Faber hasn't been at his peak since Jose Aldo got his hands on him. You you might you could say that, but Faber has gone on like two eight fight winning streaks. He was like the number two. He was the number two guy in the bantamweight division for like years. He was wiping the floor with everybody except. Barrow and Cruz. He was kicking the hell out of everybody. There was nobody he wasn't beating at, at Bantamweight except for Cruz and Barrow. He was stomping everybody at Bantamweight. He went on like a six-fight winning streak, lost his title shot, went on like a five-fight winning streak, and got another one. So like he's been longest, going on the streak. His longest winning streak since being beaten by Mac Brown is four. Hmm. I really think he went on so one. He lost to Mac know. Brown in 2008, and then he mm-hmm. beat Jens Fulver. Lost to Mike Brown again, beat Rafael Sunsau, which is a big win. Lost to Jose Aldo, beat Takeya Mizugaki, uh, beat Eddie Wineland, lost to Dominic Cruz, beat Brian Bowles, lost to Hen Burrell. Then he won four against Ivan Menjavar, Scott Jorgensen, um, Ilori Alcantara, Michael McDonald. Lost to Hen Burrell again, wins two more, loses to Frankie Edgar, beats Frankie Signs, loses two more. Wins two more, and then he lost to Peter Yan. He hasn't been on a, on a run like you're talking about since before 2008. I would say he essentially cleaned up the Bantamweight division. He he beat everybody else. He didn't. I mean, I know he's popular, but people keep acting like he wasn't beating ranked guys. He was beating one, two, three big guys in a row. He was beating higher ranked people. His most valuable wins since losing the losing the title. Eddie Wineland mm-hmm. was a former champion. And Michael McDonald, who he fought Michael McDonald when he wasn't at his peak anymore either. I would have thought Mizugaki, because Mizugaki was everybody gives Cruz a bunch of wit, wit, credit for winning that. He beat he beat Mizugaki first. Correct, correct, correct. And Takeo was doing the damn thing still back then. I don't know. Eh, I just, well, maybe not, because he was trading wins for he's been trading wins and losses since two thousand nine. It's it's hard for me to it's hard for me to look at it differently because a lot of guys have people who were like. Like when he beat when the Rampage was fighting Jones, I mean he just didn't seem like Rampage anymore. Shogun was that clearly was a peak not Rampage. the same guy. That wasn't peak Rampage. I, think- I think that was peak. I, not that wasn't peak Shogun, but he had more in the tank than 
Rampage did for sure. Mm, it could be. I'm I'm gonna put him. I'm gonna put him nowhere than top three, maybe top four for stretch. Those are just and he's those are multiple wins and he's he's been fighting guys who've had a lot of experience fighting. He's just not just beating them one. He he he's done a bunch of rematches. He's fight this guy. Let me fight him again. Fight this guy. Let me fight him again. And he keeps beating them. He keeps beating them decisively. The only person who's anywhere near that is Jones because he gives people rematches. Most other people aren't fighting rematches and winning them. I, I can't say there's too many other fighters who had. A better, more better run as a at, in their division because he never lost the title in the first place. He lost due to injury. He's one guy who can say, "I've never actually lost my title." Him and Jones, he's never lost the title. He didn't lose it until Dominic he got Cruz? his second time getting it. Yeah, when he got a title, he didn't lose it. He got hurt, and so Burrell took over and TJ took over. He didn't lose the title until he fought Cody Garbrandt, and that's after he won it a second time. Yeah, he was stripped. I mean, uh, I, I'm sitting here thinking I already got five names that I will put ahead of him. Um, I don't know if you if you beat if you beat a top three of all time fighter, I have to consider you better than most people because Demetrius Johnson, top three of all time. We can talk about top, but if, if you're gonna tell me peak rampage was that, then that that to me that means peak rampage wasn't that good because he was never as good technically as as um, Demetrius Johnson. Even at Demetrius Johnson's worst time, he was a better fighter as far as skills. You would say I would Demetrius Johnson is my top number two all like right now, but you would say he's top three of your all time all time fight rankings. Yeah, Misha Johnson. Yeah, top three fighter. Okay, all right, all right. Well, but okay. I mean, you can you you rank him higher, but he lost to Dominic Cruz. Cruz beat him. You're right. You're right. You're right. But there's so many other guys I would put ahead of Cruz. Conor McGregor, GSP. Um, I said Amanda Nunez, and I stand on that. John Jones. Yeah, you may even be that. able to put Daniel Cormier ahead of that. Yeah, I can't. Um, I can't. Es- especially if Cormier finds a way to beat Stipe if, if they ever fight again. But that's neither that's neither here nor there. I don't think that that's going to happen. Let's talk about, since we're talking about heavyweights, let's talk about the heavyweight fight this weekend where we have Francis Ngannou versus Jared Rosenstruck. Now, this is this is going to be, in my opinion, I'm hoping this fight doesn't turn out like the Ngannou versus Derek Lewis fight where you have two big, big heavy hitters standing and staring at each other because they're afraid to pull the trigger. I feel like this fight isn't going to go that way because Rosenstruck is one that will take more risk and push, push the action more a little bit. But I'm interested in seeing what Ngannou's stamina looks like in this fight. Swan, what are you looking for when these two heavyweights uh, pair up on Saturday? I'm really interested to see how how Ngannou approaches a guy who he sh- should have a better skill set than. This guy is still essentially just a kickboxer, a kickboxer who's learning MMA skills. It'd be a nice time to see if Ngannou had developed some sort of wrestling ability or grappling ability in his, in a, in his fight. Not so that he turns purely into a wrestler or grappler, but just mixing it in enough to create opening lines for him to get his strikes off because against this guy, this guy's a more seasoned striker. He's better technically. And unlike, um, unlike over him, he, he's fairly durable. So it shouldn't be as easy for, it shouldn't be as easy for Ngannou to land kill shots the way he wants, unless he has kind of a layered attack and he's never had a layer of attack in how he's fought. He's never been forced to guys kind of chase after him. He counters them guys, press him, try to get takedowns. He defends, he counters him. He hasn't he faced a guy who's really capable of matching him on the feet uh, and really kind of maybe testing some of the limitations of his game. He looks very, Ngannou looks very good because he's powerful, he's very athletic, and he plays a counter game. You lead, he makes you pay for it. And most guys in MMA aren't good enough to lead. Uh, his opponent has enough skills where I think he could eke out a decision. The question is, does he have the discipline? And has he developed enough of his all-round game to keep himself out of the spots that Ngannou is going to want to get him to, to either rest 
or to win rounds, you know, off a cheap takedown or off a control. So I, I expect Ngannou to win this fight. Um, he's close to a title shot. Um, he's a more experienced MMA fighter. I would probably say at this point he's still the better, bigger, better, stronger athlete. If he can just mix in, you know, some reactive takedowns, maybe trip takedowns and work on some control up against the fence, he, he should be able to find a knockout or, if worse, win by decision, win by fairly dominant decision. So let me ask this. Based off of what I just said about Sipe Milch is probably not fighting anytime soon. He said that he is focusing on his primary job as a first as a fireman, I believe, or is he a first responder? One of the two. But he basically is a, you know, he's out there battling dangerous situations on a daily basis and fighting is like a second job to him right now. If he, you know, draws that thing in the line where fighting is secondary to him right now and defending that title is secondary, it will be almost a year since he's won that belt. Let's see when he when did he win? When did he regain that title he regained the heavyweight belt on august of 2019 so i mean we're coming up on a year quickly should the ufc strip him and are what is the winner of nganu versus rosenstruck on the short list of being in position for a interim title shot uh i would say i would say especially if nganu wins it they wouldn't mind it making Nganu versus Daniel Cormier kind of fight because either way that whoever wins that fight sets themselves up to fight Stipe. Stipe and Nganu have history. Stipe's beaten him decisively. If Nganu gets past Cormier, that, that sets sets the stage for Stipe for a, a rematch. Um, if Cormier wins, then he wins a, he wins an interim title fight. Him and Stipe are one and one. It sets the table for a big money fight between Stipe and Cormier at some later point. So yeah, I think that's the way it goes. Um, I mean, Stipe's in a position where he he's never he's he's never been one to play ball with the UFC. That's just not what he does. It's not what he likes to do. He's never going to do it. So I'm not saying he doesn't have really good reasons for doing what he's doing. I'm just saying he's never been the guy to, to be a company man for the UFC. So if they thought they were going to get him to fight on, on their schedule, they must not know who they're talking about because he's never been a fan of how they do business or how they treated him before he won a title and after. To be quite honest. depleted is the heavyweight division right now um are there any fights that stand out to you as interesting because if like nothing really stands out to me about this division i've never been a fan of heavyweight mma and it's kind of like further cemented that they almost don't have any direction to go in this situation here so how does this fight stand out um within this division as a whole and what's the future where's the future of heavyweight as heavyweight has the same problem light heavyweight has it's so then that you, you you don't get a chance to really find your legs. You win a fight or two, and then you get thrown in the deep end. You get thrown in the deep end, and you have to prove that you can hang. And if you lose, you get knocked all the way back to the end of the line. Let's not forget, uh, Overeem almost had this guy beat. I mean, he pulled it out, but essentially Overeem almost had this guy beat. And, and if he would have lost Overeem, he'd be out of the picture. But because heavyweight is so thin, you beat one guy – they have no choice but to move you up to the next guy. You know, he might win two fights. He might win two or three fights and, and be in a title fight. The division doesn't have any depth to it. They're not really developing young talent because guys can't last long enough because they don't have enough time to get the experience or develop their skills well enough on a big stage for them to be able to handle it when they face quality competition. You have a bunch of guys who are big, strong athletes 
but had no real sense of the fight game and no real skill development in the fight game. So they just run up to this, once their athleticism is enough, they hit that ceiling and then they start backsliding. And they just haven't been able to find enough live bodies to do it because the money for heavyweight fighters or heavyweight athletes is in other sports, basketball, football, even boxing, you know, but in MMA, it's just not there. And the fact that we've got guys who are, you know, I mean, how many guys do we have under 25 fighting in heavyweight? I, I don't know. Not many. We got a lot of guys in their mid-30s, late-30s, you know, guys who really aren't going to be at their athletic peak for more than another two or three years at most. And that's the, that's the guys we have as names, you know. So they haven't done a very good job filling it. I don't know that it's ever going to get to the point where it's going to be a lot of quality fighters just because the pool is so much smaller because guys that size with any athleticism are playing sports that pay them four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven times more than what the UFC is paying them to not get paying them millions of dollars to not get punched in the face. Okay. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. Let's move on to another interesting fight on this card. Man, there's so many different fights to really pick from. Let's talk about this Anthony Pettis Donald Cerrone fight. Now this is a rematch. And what's, what I want to talk about this fight for is because you have two men that are on a very similar point in their career. They've experienced upsurges, um, but they're both at a point where they could be on their way out. I'm not necessarily saying out of the UFC, but out of the primary spot where they're considered still a threat. You have Donald Cerrone, who's coming off of that loss to Conor McGregor earlier this year, and you have Anthony Pettis, who's also coming off of a loss. So for Cerrone, he fought in uh, January of this year. This fight in May is his first break, per se, his longest break since probably 2018 when he fought in February and then fought in June. Outside of that, or maybe actually his fight, or maybe 2017 where he fought Robbie Lawler in July, lost, and then fought Darren Till in October. Either way, we know Darren, uh, we know how busy Donald Cerrone likes to stay, but he's coming off of a loss, coming off of a little bit of a break for Donald Cerrone's um, point. And Anthony Pettis is riding a two-fight losing streak where he lost to Nate Diaz. And then he got submitted by Carlos uh, Fereja in January of this year as well. What are your thoughts about this fight here, man? Um, you have two guys who are at a position where it's, I don't know what's next for them. Pettis has won four of his last, four of his last 12. He's eight and, eight and four, excuse me, four and eight over his last 12 while Cerrone is seven, he's so he's lost seven, and he's won four of his last 11. So he's won four in his last 11 and lost the other seven. What about this fight here, man? Like, these two guys are two in, in, are in two very similar positions. First, let's talk about the fight itself, and let's talk about what's next for both men. Uh, break down what you think, how this, think this fight is going to go. And this is a rematch of when they fought back in... When did they fight? They fought back in 2013, so seven years ago, where Anthony Pettis blew him away by a uh, body kick in 
the first round. So what are your thoughts about this fight, Sean? It's kind of sad. It's good because it's a fight. I mean, both guys have a good chance of winning. Neither guy's what they used to be. Anthony Pettis isn't the athlete he used to be. Um, Cerrone just isn't physically as durable as he used to be anymore. I think his skill set is better. I think his uh, obviously he's got that world class experience, but he just he just can't take shots the way he used to, and he can't recover from shots the way he used to. So it, it kind of puts it on an even playing field. But um, I mean, Cerrone's got the better skill set. He's got better hands than Pettis. He's got better wrestling than Pettis. Step for step, he's a better grappler. Pettis is just a better finisher as a striker, more dynamic striker, more dynamic grappler, but he's not technically better than him. I don't even know that he's got even a higher fight IQ than Donald Cerrone. The thing that Pettis does have, though, is he still has dynamic power. He still has, at least in the top half level of, of the division, athleticism, and he still hits very hard, and he still takes a wonderful shot. So physically, he's, he doesn't have to ride it, walk a tightrope back the same way Donald Cerrone does. Donald Cerrone's been beat up really bad in the last couple of fights. He's been finished decisively by guys who can hit big, and you can't really manage it once you lose your durability. The only thing you can do is fight technically clean fights that don't put you in positions to be finished. Um, just on paper, I'd have to say, I'd have to say Pettis is the advantage just, just based off of athleticism, durability, and actual power. Uh, right now, Cowboy doesn't have any of those things. And while I think he has a skill set to force the fight to take advantage of Pettis in certain spots, he's never, he's never been the most slickest guy defensively. And at some point, Pettis is going to land the shot that he wants to land. And when he does, that, that essentially should turn the fight. Um, it's not out of the realm that, that Cerrone can't stick a jab on him and keep him at arm's length and chop him to the legs and chop him to the body and essentially outpoint him and outhustle him. But at some point, Pettis is going to land his power, and I don't know that, that Cerrone has the ability to, to take it anymore. And he, was never, he never had a great chin in the first place. He's never been great with body shots, and, and Pettis still has the ability to cut anybody in half when he lands a shot on him. So it really is it's a good fight. It's kind of going to be one of those fights where it's athlete against, against fighter, and you're going to see, see who wins out. But not being able to take punishment is a big factor in any fight at a world-class level. And, for, and Cerrone can't take punishment like he used to. So I had an interesting thought about this fight here. If Pettis loses, let's say he loses on um, Saturday, do you think he ends up in Bellator with his brother? Um, I think Pettis probably should have left UFC like a couple years ago. While he still has some hype behind his name, I think he should have left because he's he was he had enough of an impression. He was enough of a star to where he could have gotten the uh, the full package right up with Bellator and kind of ease his way into be- bigger and better fights and put himself back in contention. Um, I mean, after another loss, I I guess Bellator is still an option. But had he left, you know, right after Thompson or left earlier on, he he, he would have had a little bit more leverage. I don't know that he wants to fight in Bellator, and I don't know at this point that if he loses another fight, especially if he loses dominantly, I, I don't know the money available for him in Bellator. I mean, I guess it's it's a fair shot, it's a fair shot, but it I don't I don't know if I see it right now. I think if he loses another fight or two, I think he really needs to consider retiring. Interesting. I wasn't expecting that answer. I really thought that you would be on par with him moving over to um, 
Bellator for sure. I, I, I'm not against. Sure. I'm not against it, but it's like when Roy Nelson had the chance to leave to go to Bellator and he resigned the UFC. He was at his highest peak. He had. He was coming off of wins, or he, even if he had a loss, it was only like one or one or so losses in his last couple of fights. He had been performing well. He was in a better position. A couple, you know, after Stephen Thompson fight, he was Pettis was in a better position. After beating uh, the Bronx, he was in a better position. It's like he just kept putting his faith in the UFC, and right now he's not. He, He's not the athlete he used to be. It's harder to sell his fights, and it's harder to sell him because he hasn't looked great in a lot of his fights recently. So I, I just feel I'm not against it. I just feel like it's a move that should have been made earlier while he had some power and he had some leeway and he had some leverage. Okay. All right. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Um, since we're running kind of low on time, let's talk about one other fight I wanted to cover just because it's the only, I think it's the only women's fight on the card and because it's two ladies that I am a fan of where we have Carla Esparza fighting Michelle Watterson. Uh, break down this fight for me quickly there, Sean. This is two, they're two of my favorite women's fighters. I think that they're both spectacular and especially Esparza because she continue, she doesn't go away. Um, she lost the title a few years ago to Yuana Yanjacek. I don't ever see her being a contender for it again. Um, uh, well, I'm not going to say that. Uh, she would have to some things would have to fall into her favor for that to happen, but she does not go away. I mean, she's only lost to Njacek since, since being in the UFC, Randa Marcos, which was a split decision, Claudia Gadelia, which was a split decision, and Tatiana Suarez, but Daska Suarez is a beast. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and who do you see coming out on top? Was Watterson or um, Esparza? Um, I think it should be a good fight because both of them are on the smaller side as far as that weight division. Um, Watterson's a better striker. Watterson's a better athlete, I would think. I think Sparza's fought the better competition. Sparza's got the better overall skill set. And physically, she's she's probably a little bit stronger, a little bit more durable. I'd probably go with, with Sparza just because I don't, I don't think Watterson takes punishment particularly well. And I don't think Watterson can win those grappling exchanges. Just I don't think she – I think she lacks a little bit of the physicality. On the feet, she should be able to have her way with Esparza, but I don't know that Watterson hits hard enough, nor do I think her defensive footwork is enough for her to stay away from Water- Carla for three rounds and just pick her apart. Car- Carla's been able to get her hands on, at least get her hands on, much better strikers. She's been able to take down much better, much bigger and better grapplers and much bigger and better hitting fighters. So uh, based on the based on their performances against the better athletes and the better quality of fighters, I have to pick Esparza. She just beat, she's beaten better girls. It, it's a, it's a good matchup for Carla and it, and it's a good matchup for Watterson because she's facing a girl who's not a great striker, who's not a dynamic finisher and who isn't a great athlete. So she ha- has spots she can attack and she has spaces where she'll be safe in. I just think the physicality, the pace and, and those grappling exchanges will be the difference. Uh, I think I think as far as a wins a decision, she she might get a stoppage, but Watterson's pretty tough, so it'll, it'll probably be a decision win. Yeah, I can see as far as doing enough in all positions to kind of get to the point fighting positions that she usually wins. Um, I, I can see like a heavy volume three round fight for her to get the win as well too. Uh, what else on this card stands out to you, man? There's a lot. There's a lot here. Bryce Mitchell was fighting. I expect him to say something stupid about COVID-19 if if he wins. Rubikio Verdum, uh, Alexia Onik, Greg Hardy's fighting. German Stevens, Calvin Cater. There's a lot of good things on this fight here. Fight card for Saturday. What are you um, looking forward to the most? I'm. Um, I'd like to see how 
Cater does with Stevens. Stevens has become kind of a gatekeeper, guy who's still dangerous because of his punching power in quotations and his athleticism, but a guy who's clearly kind of reached his peak as far as how far he can go and being a real title contender. He's the kind of win that Cater has to get to move to the next echelon where he's actually considered a legitimate um, title contender or a fringe title contender. And then I'm also interested in seeing... Um, I'm not a big fan of Greg Cardell. I mean, I don't like what he did. I'm not a big fan of him. I don't know him, so I can't say I hate him or something like that personally. I just don't agree with what he did. It's interesting to see if he's developed enough where his athleticism can be a factor because even though he's not a very good fighter, given his limited experience and limited skills, he shouldn't be able to go three rounds with, with a quality heavyweight. And he was able to do that, and he was able to have some moments. So I'm interested in Greg Hardy purely from the instance of finding out how far can your athleticism take you when you don't have uh, an extended extended career resume in combat sports. Because I think a lot of guys who might do football or maybe are coming out of football are watching Greg Hardy to see what kind of success he has. If Greg Hardy goes on a win and wins a fight or two and wins dominantly, I think more fight more athletes, guys who don't make it to the NFL, might come over because they're going to be like, I'm just as good an athlete as him. I'm, maybe I'm in my prime, and maybe I, I only play a couple years of pro football, and then I go into it. And they might look at him as a blueprint to follow moving forward outside of the obvious cr- criminal activity and the disgusting nature of what he's been accused of. Um, guys might be following him to see if they can do what he did. Okay, is there anything else on this card that stands out to you? Nope, that would be it, sir. So I want to talk about a big fight that was is being basically tagged as a main event for May 23rd, so later on this year, where we have Gilbert Burns and Tyron Woodley fighting at 170 pounds. And this is a fight, again, with two men who are in kind of different positions. Woodley is looking to finally get back to action after losing his title to Kamal Usman last year. And you have Gilbert Burns, who's on a little bit of a streak here. Um, you saw him just stop Damian Maya. Uh, last month or in March, and he's been on a streak, man. He looks good at 170, and he can fight in a lot of different positions. What do you think about this fight here, and how do you see it going down when these two guys finally get into the cage? I feel like, I really feel like Tyron Woodley has really taken a lot of steps backwards. I said before, once he lost his belt, that the act he had and the kind of image and the stuff he talked wasn't gonna wasn't gonna go over nearly as well as he used to, and it didn't go over very well when he was champion and it's it's weird how he's essentially been pushed out of the contender spot or pushed out of the ring a circle of name welterweights like nobody really talks about Tyron Woodley as a name a guy like Gilbert Burns is calling him out Leon Edwards is kind of giving up on him he's not really interested Colby Covington not really interested uh Jorge Masvidal isn't really interested Kamara Usman isn't really interested you know, usually a heavyweight champion, even a champion, if, even if they get beat dominantly, they get a they get a rematch. And Woodley wasn't even considered for one. And none of the guys who fought for the title recently or are close to the title want to fight him. They have no interest in him. Like, nobody wants to be a part of it. Nobody wants to engage in it. Nobody's demanding it. They're just like, oh, let him go. Any other fight, somebody else would be like, let me get that guy. He used to be a champion. I want him. Who's calling out Woodley? Nobody wants, nobody wants, nobody wants to deal with him. And so it's really shocking to me how far he's fallen as far as his importance in the fight world. As far as the fight, it should be a fight Woodley can win. Um, he's a better athlete than Burns, even though he's declined a little bit. He's still a knockout puncher, striker when he wants to be. And um, as good as Burns 
has been. I don't know that Burns is a really high-end wrestler. I know he's a better grappler. I know he could finish Woodley on the ground. I know he could probably finish him in transition. But I still think that Woodley's perfectly capable of landing three or four big shots in a fight, winning a round on wrestling, and then winning a round on wrestling or just winning, landing one or two big shots and basically knocking Burns out. Um, if Burns beat him, I wouldn't be, ups- I wouldn't be upset by it because Woodley's got a very limited skill set. I just think that his limited skill set still can expose the holes in Burns as far as Burns' physical durability and Burns' defense. It's, it's really not there. And I don't know that he fights at a high enough pace to exhaust Woodley. And if he does fight at a high enough pace to exhaust him, he's going to catch some heat. Woodley isn't good for 15, 20 punches around. He's good for like five to seven. But those five to seven will change your life. Ask Stephen Thompson. I mean, yeah, Steven Thompson definitely knows about that and a couple of others as well, too. Uh, we got a couple of listener questions I want to jump to. And what type? Of, the first one is, what type of ratings and pay-per-view rise should we expect for this weekend's card? Um, I'm going to simplify that and say we're going to play the over-under game of 500,000 buys. I'm going to say under. I'm going to say more about the 325 number. What about you, Sean? Uh, uh, 325, 350. I can't see 500. I just can't see it. They don't have any draws on this on this on this pay per view. I mean, Gaethje's not some huge draw. Neither is Ferguson. Neither is Cejudo. Neither is Cruz. So around 350, yeah. 350 would be Jenner. Maybe 375. Yeah, 350, 375 at the best. I can't see anything higher. I mean, even beyond that, uh, we're do- we're 30 million people are on unemployment. So yeah, I think a lot of that is is the is a demographic that caters to this type of sport here. So yeah. I think that's uh, also going to impact those numbers. Yeah, I mean, plus it's like you know they usually have all these sports that kind of lead up to it and set the table. You have people in that frenzied sports mind. There's it's the only sport which is good because you get all the attention, but there's no buildup. You know, and let's face it, even even the best performers need kind of a build up build up to kind of spark that interest to get them hyped. And and the UFC as good as a consistent performance has been, they don't have a headliner. It ain't like they drop in Conor McGregor on us. You know, it ain't like Beyonce at Coachella. This is I don't know Sierra. I don't know if we get a sellout with Sierra. Okay. She's good. I like her, but I don't know if we sell out with her. I mean, you know, you can't be taking shots at uh, Sierra because now her music's going to be stuck in my head. But that's that's I'll come back to that at a later date. We'll talk about that later. Where she fit? Where, One, we'll, two we'll argue, stuff away. We'll argue where Sierra fits in the top five of all time of the late '99, early uh, 2000 R&B uh, R&B singers. We'll have that argument at, at, a, at a later date. And if your answer isn't Aaliyah as number one, I will fucking fly to uh, Texas and fight you myself. But, you don't um, have to worry. I agree with you. Even though she threw me out of, even though she threw me and my, my friend out of a, a private club performance, I still like her. You probably deserved it. Well, my friend booed her, and I was like, "Dude, what are you doing?" Security came and got us with the quickness, dude. <laughs> I see. If I would have been her security, I would have woke up in an underground fight club. Yeah, we're we're where I was like, dude, they could have killed us. What, what were you thinking? I don't want to hear no excuses. I'm like, you know, what? I I'm not going anywhere with you from now on. Don't call me for nothing. No, don't call me, period. We are no longer friends. Haven't talked to him in like 15 years since then. <laughs> I, I, I would have to fight you over that. Um, so this is an interesting question I got in reference to this too, because you know the UFC is planning on doing a whole bunch of shows. They have this one on the 9th, 
13th, 16th, and then the 23rd. At what point will fight fans be burned out? Because people often talked about the oversaturation of MMA when UFC was basically having like three fight cards, a um, three fight cards a month, three or four sometimes. In some instances, people were talking about oversaturation. Do you think fight fans will get burned out from all of these fights in such a quick turnaround like this, or is there, um, or would that not be as much of a problem as some people think? I think they can because they don't have enough top-notch matchups to make that are going to keep their interest, that are really, really going to spark the interest. I think they should go to like one or two cards a month and try and make them the best cards possible. That's what, that's what I think they should be doing. Hell, I might, I might even say they should just go back to one regular card, one pay-per-view a month, and, and just try to and try to get the best, most appealing fights possible. You can't run these many cards, especially with these circumstances. What if somebody gets injured? What if somebody gets sick? It's just too much. You're, you're not managing the, the world we're in. Pick your spots, cut down on the cards. I mean, there's not going to be other sports going on for a while, anyways. You're still going to be be one of the best watches. Just just do whatever you can to manage it because you have too many fight cards, and you bring in a person last second, and somebody ends up getting corona. It just it could go really bad. You need to have as a controlled environment as possible with these fights, and trying to overflow with five, six events a month or seven, whatever they're doing, that ain't it. Me personally, I don't think that's it. So do you think fight fans after the 23rd will be like, okay, that's enough. I need a break. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, well, the fact of the matter is that they don't have really big selling. The, the hardcores are going to be there, that 100,000, 200,000, 250,000. It's will the people who really p- take you past that, will they be interested? I think the answer is going to be no. I don't know that they can come up with that many fights I have to see. That's what we're looking for, fights you have to see. It can't just be okay matchups. I don't want to see Rose Namajunas versus, I don't know, uh, whoever. I, I, don't, I can't even think. I, I want to see name matches. I want to see exciting matches. I want to see the matchups. You know, if I'm going to get a Super Bowl, I want the best possible Super Bowl possible. They could just put it together. I want the two biggest names. But we can't be guaranteed we get want to see the playoffs. I want to see Kawhi versus LeBron. I want to see LeBron versus, I don't know who's coming out, Giannis. That's what I want to see. If I can get that guarantee, I get that. And in fighting, you set the cards. But if you're just going to give me, you know, the Lakers versus Denver or Portland in the first round, I don't really care to see that. Most casuals aren't going to care to see that. you got to have something that gets their interest. And I don't know that they can continue for four, five, six, seven, eight card, give you the best, most exciting, most appealing fight. I don't think that's possible right now. And I think people will be burned out unless they're giving them big stand-up, tent, big stand-up events. And I don't think the UFC can generate those right now. Okay. All right, sir. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and close the show out, man. Um, Let everybody know what you're working on and where they can catch your content. Uh, You can always find me on Twitter, Black Jordan Breen. Um, As usual, I'm always talking fights, letting in my little comments about camps or fighters. Um, still doing research for the Black Widow article that'll be whenever that movie comes out. I somebody told me it comes out at some point. I, I didn't keep track of it, but kind of setting that up. And then I'm just working on some articles, kind of addressing some of the uh, mistakes camps make in preparing their fighters. It's stuff, different things that nature. More like a uh, deep dives into the culture and the uh, thought process that goes into developing fighters. That's resulting in fighters not getting better and ultimately losing. Good stuff, sir. I am 
um, working on, I'm working on a couple of different podcasts. Uh, I'm doing a retro review. I, I'm not going to call it that though, because that's stolen from someone else, but that's just an idea of what I'm doing on the top 10 WWE matches from the 2010s. I did the first one. I got to post that. I got to kind of record. I'm, I'm going to watch them live. Actually, that's what I'm going to do. At first, I was just going to do a podcast of my reactions, but I'm actually going to flip that and watch them live and do and take my reactions because a lot of these I've seen. There's a couple I haven't, but because there was a, there was a brief time where I stopped watching watching wrestling. So that's really the main thing I'm going to be doing. And then I'm probably going to switch this over and have you and I start doing some retro uh, reviews for past fights, um, both boxing and MMA and some others as well too. And just sit down and watch them and kind of record our reactions. So that'll be something that'll be going on as well too, Sean. So um, keep an eye out on that in the near future. But as always, um, I'm covering professional wrestling and MMA. You can find me at rgarcia underscore sports. Talking just about everything from combat world, basketball, and um, politics and anything in between. Speaking of basketball, Schwann, what did you think of episodes three and four of The Last Dance? Uh, or are we on episodes four and five? I don't even remember. Whatever, whatever. It's, it's just it's an, it's just an, it's just interesting watching it. A lot of it is stuff that was previously discussed. It's just interesting seeing Michael's actual feedback in real time now to what happened. But it, it's just interesting seeing the differences between basketball, how much has changed, and um, I, I still think I think uh, Jordan would be one one of the top five top 10 players right now i think barkley would be one of the top 10 players i know people forget that charles barkley was a great player because all they know of him is being funny and getting getting dissed off dissed on tv by shaq for not winning a championship but barkley was at one point no worse than the second best player in the league that dude right now with all the spacing and no defense and no hand checking and no physicality i don't know what he might do to the league right now i, I don't know what, what charles barkley would do right now it's it, it just he would be, be bodying people i'll tell you that much he was scoring 27 points without shooting with shooting like one to two threes a game averaging 27 points 10 11 12 rebounds four to six six seven assists a game like he could really he could really it's like draymond green draymond green had athleticism he could do everything draymond does he just had the athleticism and scoring ability like people just don't appreciate how good some of these guys from the past were magic johnson larry bird still slow larry bird would be killing people right now Larry Bird would be killing people. He would still be averaging close to 20, 20-some points a game. Just off shooting ability alone, like, people don't study the game, so they don't really know anything more than what they know right now. They don't understand how good some of these guys were. And it, it's good seeing pe- people have to go back to some of the tried-and-true techniques of the, of the game to expand their games from where they are right now. Because right now it's all to the rim and three-pointers. People don't do triple threat. Their footwork is crappy. I say, I say this as a guy who trains high school and college players. I, I do this in my spare time when I'm not helping fighters. So I know what I'm talking about. And most people you can't talk basketball with. So I'm, I'm glad to see some of the old fundamentals being brought back, brought to current times now. So a couple things, man. Um, one was when it came to Larry Bird. You know, I hate Larry Legend. I do. Um, I have my reasons. But I was reading about, I forgot about this, but I was reading about the time the dude played with his left hand just to keep his right hand, just to rest his right hand and do score a triple-double or he ended the day with a triple-double. That, like, when you're that good, like, uh, that just makes me so mad. <laughs> How do you go out there and say, I'm going to play with my offhand and fuck around and, and get a triple-double? So there's that. Like, these guys... 
these guys knew how to play. They, I mean, they really knew how to play. They weren't just could jump and slam the ball. They knew how to play basketball. And there's a big, a lot of guys don't know how to play right now. It is big, strong, long athletes. So there's that question. And the other was, what would you give and who would you take if we got an MMA match between Jordan and um, Isaiah Thomas? I don't know, man. Uh, you know, I, I think if they ever really dedicate themselves to training, I think they'd both be really good at it just because both guys are very uh, obsessive and, and dominating. You know what I mean? Like, like Jordan, you know, like I was watching the, Jordan, the thing on Jordan playing baseball. Even though he never became, like, actually good, the improvement he had from when he started to when he left, it was, like, unseen. Like, actual baseball players were like, dude, like, you're not supposed to be able to make this kind of advancement and this kind of focus and this kind of improvement over this brief period of time. But it's just because he was such a worker. Same thing with Isaiah Thomas. They just grind and grind and grind and wore their bodies into the ground. And we have that kind of mentality. I think both guys, I don't say, I won't say they would be UFC level, but if I think they actually train, they would be good. And I think it'd be a good fight. I'd probably say Isaiah. I think Isaiah is just a little dirtier. I think he'd get some cheap shots in there, dump him in the eyes, knock him out, something like that. To pull the John Jones thumb in the eye, can't see, then punish him. But um, it, it'd be good. I know it, it'd probably be very violent. <laughs> I really think it'd be really violent because I, I don't think they like each other at all. And you see, th- they see that much contact in a basketball game. I don't know what they do when you actually punch somebody. You can legitimately punch somebody. I don't know what would happen. That's a good thought there, man. Legitimately punch somebody? I would, I would definitely take that. But, okay, we're going to go ahead and close down. We'll be back here next week. We got fights this weekend to talk about. We got fights next weekend to talk about. So we're going to close out. Thank you for everyone for taking the time to join us. As always, you can go to MMARatings.net. Let us know how excited you are for MMA coming back. Go up there and um, use our star system to rank the fights. Uh, go over to YouTube, MMA Ratings. You can catch all of our content there, both this podcast and a Let's Talk Wrestling podcast where I talk about professional wrestling, usually on Thursdays and Fridays. I have a pay-per-view to cover this weekend as well. So um, you can also catch us on Instagram and Twitter at MMA Ratings Net. And you can catch our podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Apple iTunes, and Google Podcasts as well. So do that and just check out our content. Be sure to like and share and subscribe. We appreciate all the support. But with that in mind, guys, let's go ahead and close down and have a great weekend, everyone. All right, you guys. Take it easy.